studying the book of Galatians, a letter that Paul wrote to a number of different churches in what's now considered southeast to south central Turkey. And, and today we're moving a little bit forward into considering works. Works as in what we do for God. And I'd love to say we're going to cover chapter 5, verse 2 through chapter 5, 15. Um, more on that in a minute, but whoops, let me get this over here to say that Paul frequently divided his letters into two parts. We discussed this last week, that he had theology at the beginning of his letter, which is the foundation from which we understand how to live. See, Christianity is an important faith in that our understanding of who God is, who we are, what God has done for us, and what God expects of us, that informs how we live. And so for Paul, he always seems to be dealing with the theology before he turns his attention to things that in some ways seem more practical. Although, he's still never far from theology. He's never far from the, the doctrines and the, the, the understanding that underpins so much of who we are and what we do. Now, in the way Paul divides his letters, sometimes he makes a very sharp corner dividing what was theology from what seems more practical. If you look, for example, at Colossians, in Colossians 3.4, you have that corner turned into Colossians 3.5. And uh, it, it's just a good example of, of how Paul does that. So we'll look at it. Uh, in Colossians 3, Paul finishes up his theology of sorts by when Christ who is your life appears you'll also appear with him in glory and then boom he turns a corner starts getting very practical and says so put to death what's earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire covetousness which is idolatry and and he turns that corner he turns a similar corner in Ephesians around Ephesians 3.21. Going into Ephesians 4.1. So, he finishes the, the, the glory of the gospel revealed and the mystery of the gospel revealed with this wonderful doxology prayer. To him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. By the way, remember that if you do. We'll cover that today a little bit. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Then he turns a corner. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And he turns that sharp corner there and starts getting very practical. Now, he turns the corner in Galatians, but in Galatians, it's one of these books where the corner's a little more rounded. It's not a stark corner. And so I want to address this with you, and there is a part of me that always likes to do things when I'm speaking in threes. I like three points. I do my classes off of three points. I give an opening statement in court off of three points. I give a closing statement in court off of three points. I try to do any speech I give off of three points. 
Three points makes a complete speech. Two points is only two-thirds there. Four points is too many. It needs to be three. Uno, dos, trace. Three. More on that in a minute. Here are the three points. Can someone fall from grace? Point two, the seduction of self-justification. Point three, free to be moral. Those are the three points I'd like to make today. But regrettably, I won't have time. Oh, mercy, I've been doing this wonderful PowerPoint. You all have missed it? Okay, we're just going to get started. We're going to talk about it anyway, and we're just going to figure it out. So the first question that I wanted to deal with is, can you fall from grace? The problem is, that section of Galatians is so rich in what it has to say that I don't think I'm getting to the other two points, which is an obtuse way of saying that I don't really have three points in this class today. I only have one, but I couldn't bring myself to admit that because I don't like to give a speech without three points. So I'm pretending I have three, and if you could see it on the screen, you would see all three of those points, and then I would tell you I'm not going to cover all three of those points. So let's start with the first point. Can someone fall from grace? Now... <laughs> Look with me, please. <laughs> yeah, here it is, Galatians 5. <laughs> oh, mercy, if you just had a clue how important the PowerPoint is this morning. Um, Paul says, starting in verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, Thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Let me just fill you in. So, I talked about all this stuff you missed. I talked about sharp corners. I talked about rounded corners. I talked about the importance of three points. Can one fall from grace, the seduction of self-justification, and free to be moral? And I warned you, I'm really only covering one point today. But it's still a three-point lesson. You just don't have to stay for three hours. Now, can one fall from grace? We have just read Galatians 5, 2 through 6, and frankly, I'd love to put it on the screen for you. Look, Paul began. Now, what I'd love to do is to get everyone in here at least a year or two of Greek lessons. But failing the ability to do that, knowing that many of you have studied Greek, uh, if we've got David Capes in here, he's taught Greek for decades. Um, knowing that, 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 that the best I can do is try to impart to you some of the thrust you'd get if you were reading this in Greek. And that begins right here with look, ide, look. Paul says, 
look, to draw your attention, he wants you paying attention. Now, one of the things I like to do is ride the Peloton bicycle. I have ridden the Peloton bicycle for 51 days in a row. I'm really stoked about that. I've been riding it for six years, but I've never ridden it 51 days in a row before. I'm like really addicted. And if you ride a Peloton bike, they have different instructors. And one of the instructors is this fella named Alex Toussaint. Now, Alex is someone that I will only ride if I'm feeling pretty good. Because he is like, he's like, he's like Coach Max. He's a stud. I mean, he, he gets it done. He, he is, um, he's, he's in great condition. And as an instructor, he claps louder than anyone I've ever met in my life. One time I rode in studio, in the, the studio where they film, with him as the instructor. And the studio's really loud, and they've got this really loud music playing. And he's got a microphone on his mouth, and he's talking over the music, telling you to do better than you're doing. And then he starts clapping to get your attention. And his clapping's the loudest clapping I've ever heard in my life. It's like it draws your attention. And, and, and I mean, he's clap, clap, clap. And then he says, this ain't daycare. <laughs> and it's generated a whole bunch of people who do things like have coffee mugs. I'm sorry, I can't. I have plans with Alex Trousson. Because Alex Trousson is, is he's, he's, he's just getting your attention and making you focus. That's what this look is for Paul. When Paul says, look, E-Day, he's getting your attention. It's the first word out of the box. He says, focus. He's clapping. Boom, 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 boom. Pay attention. And then he says, I, Paul, say to you. But in the Greek, ego, Paulos, lego, amun is, is, is an emphatic I. He says, I, Paul, I say. He's got I twice because he's got ego is I, and then Paulos, he gives his name. Well, who do you think it is? You've already said it's Paul writing the letter. I, Paul. And then Lego already has I in it. It means I say. So he says, I, Paul, I say to you. And he's, he's, this is serious business. And he means it. This is, pay attention to me. See, Paul recognizes that our attention span can drift. We can listen to different people. You know, one of the biggest concerns I have about people during the COVID time not coming and attending church? It's that. Our attention drifts. That's just the way we are. And it's, it's not that we just all of a sudden say, I'm turning my back on the Lord. I mean, some people do that, but that's not what happens. We just kind of, okay, well, this week I think I'll stay home. Ah, uh, this week I've got, man, it's a busy week. I've got all these other distractions. I got this going on, and I got that going on. God wants me to do well at this. And pretty soon we've fallen off the cliff. And we don't even realize it. And Paul's saying, no. My nephew, Davis, rides the Peloton. Davis, do you ride with Alex? And does he get your attention? And he's bam, 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 bam. Because it's focus. And Paul's saying, you focus. You pay attention to who you're listening to. You listen to me, please. And then he says... If you accept circumcision, uh, I, and, and the English standard takes that as, as a, a, a passive 
it's passive middle voice, but it, it's basically if, if you say, I'm going to, uh, and, and here Paul's especially targeting the Greeks, Jews would have already been circumcised as infants. You don't really have a say-so in that. But if you as a Greek decide you're going to come in under the law with circumcision, and Paul's using circumcision to, as an example, as an illustration, as a type of the idea of following the law to be right with God. If you think you need to follow the law to be right with God, if that's the way you want to choose, if you want to choose that side of the coin, if you want to be one of the people who says, if I died tonight and I stand before the judgment seat of God, where Paul says that God executes judgment based upon the deeds of humanity, would I think I'm okay because of me? Oh, I'm a pretty nice guy. I try to help people when I can. I've got enough time and energy. I'm a pretty nice guy. I try not to gossip unless it's really good. I'm a pretty nice guy. Fill in the blank. I hadn't killed anybody this week. I mean, if, if anybody thinks that their relationship to God is based upon their performance before God, then Paul is using circumcision as an illustration of that mindset. And it's within that mindset, Paul says, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you think that it's based on how you behave, why do you even need Jesus crucified? Did he just die for the Adolf Hitlers of the world? Does he not die for the people who can be pretty good? And this word translated advantage, ophileo, it's ophelesi here, but ophileo. This word means to, to help or to aid or to benefit or to use. It's got a wide semantic range, but it's all this idea of an advantage. You know, what, what help is Christ to you? If you can be okay before God because of your choices, what good is Christ for you? What benefit? What use? You don't need him. He's not of any advantage to you. And this is Paul echoing the principle he already set out earlier in the letter. In Galatians 2.21 he says, If righteousness, dikaiosune in the Greek, right standing before God, if righteousness was through the law, through works through what you did through performance then Christ died for no reason F.F. F. Bruce said it this way Christ will provide unlimited help to those who place their trust in him but no help at all to those who bypass his saving work and think to become acceptable to God by circumcision or other legal observances. And Paul says, that's just not happening. Then he says, I testify again to every man. Now, here's an interesting predicament we're in. Um, Ponti anthropo is every man. Uh, uh, pas is Every and anthropos is man. But anthropos is more than man. It's humanity. It's, it's, um, it's man in the sense of mankind. Humankind. But it's really helpful to have it as man when you're talking about circumcision. Because the dynamic and the principle is the same for everybody. But circumcision only happens to men, right? So... 
He's saying every man who accepts circumcision, but that principle is broader than every man. Every person who decides they're okay before God because of their efforts and works and deeds, those people need to be perfect. They need to keep the whole law. They need to do it all. Don't think you can just be, well, I'm good enough to, 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 to get salvation based on my own effort, but I don't have to be perfect. Wrongo. If you're going to stand before God because of your deeds and merits, God's 100% pure and you better be too. That's the obligation. And there's a nice play on word sounds here that makes a really sharp contrast between grace and obligation. So where Paul says he's obligated, ophiletes is obligated. And that's a short O in the Greek, ophiletes. But if you go back up here where he says Christ is of no benefit, it sounds almost the same. It's a long O, ophilesi, but the words just echo each other. It's not the same word, but it sounds almost the same. And because of that, Paul's got a nice little play. He's saying, look, I say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage, and you have the obligation to do it all. And that, those are contrasted by that word play. So those are your choices. Those are the those, I mean, it's, it's heads or tails. It's pregnant or not pregnant. It's not half pregnant. And the coin flip doesn't stand on the edge. It's heads or tails. And you've got to make that pick. That uh, play on the words, I forgot that I had circled them. But there it is. So here's the deal. Paul says, you don't think you're just getting your toes wet with circumcision. Well, I'm going to keep some of the law. I'm going to do some of the things uh, that, to get God's favor because I need to, but then I'll rest on his grace for the rest of it. No, you, you're diving into the pool, baby. You don't dive into the pool and just get your toes wet. You can't jump off the diving board into the pool and say, I think I'm going to get in gradually. Get used to the water temperature. Don't think you can be halfway, you can halfway be right before God by following the rules. That's just not the way it works. So Paul continues. He says, you're severed from Christ. You who would be justified, declared right by law. You have fallen away from grace. Now if you were in Greek class you would take your glasses off and you would be stunned and say, did I just read that? Because Paul has just done something in the Greek that we miss the strength of in the English. Verse 4 starts out. And if you look at verse 4 carefully, you're going to see something called ascenditon. Ascenditon all right, in the Greek language, there are all of these little connective words that they used all the time. They've got uh, uh, kais and days and, and, and all of these just words that just connect. And, and they're always in there. And they, they connect all of these phrases and clauses and sentences. And it's, it, it was Greek in the time of Paul was almost sung and so they had these connecting words that kind of kept the singing, the sound going. Ascenditon is where they don't put one of those words in. Where it's just... Do you remember... Sorry, young ones, you'll have to get this on YouTube. YouTube, Aqua Velva Commercials. I believe it was Aqua Velva, where the guy slapped with the aftershave, just bam, and he goes, ouch, that hurt. He goes, that's not what he goes. He goes, thanks, 
I needed that. The idea that this aftershave will wake you up. Okay, this is a slap in the face. Ascendaton is something that in the singing of the Greek is going to be like stand out. It's a way that the Greeks put emphasis on a something. And, and, and it's, it's a way to really drive home a point. And the word that Paul begins this sentence with isn't any kind of a connective. It is, you are severed. That's a big deal. And, and, and it's not only a big deal that, that there's this rhythmic ascendaton idea that's a huge attention getter, but the word order that he sticks that word first is a huge deal. He says, this is like second way that that just jumps out at you. You're severed. Cut off. And then he shifted in the verb because if you remember verse 3, if a man is to do circumcision, then a man is obligated. He's talking about the proverbial, if someone else, if someone else. And then just, bam, he slaps him in the face. Comes right at him and says, you're severed. You're cut off. You are severed from Christ. And that is jolting. And that should be jolting. This is no small matter. Listen, we, when we make this a small matter, we are destroying the holiness of God. When we make it a small matter, well, I'm just trying to please God by what I do. What's so wrong with that, Paul? You don't have a right view of the holy purity of God if you even remotely think that you can justify yourself. And that's no minor matter. This is serious, first degree serious stuff. You are severed from Christ. He could say it no more powerfully no more emphatically, no more bluntly than he says it there. You are severed from Christ. And that Greek word severed, katargeo, katargeo. Look at some of the usages of it. It means waste. Luke 13, 17. Luke was a travel buddy of Paul. I like to think they used some similar vocabulary. Luke 13, 7. This is the parable of the barren tree, the way Luke writes it up. Jesus told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came seeking fruit on it. He found none. He said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've been trying to get fruit on this tree, and I don't find any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Why should it use up the ground? Cut it down. That's sever it. It's useless. Sever it. Let me give you a second example. This word also conveys the idea of causing something. Passage for that. Romans 7, 2, you see Paul using the word. Paul says, A married woman is bound to her husband, bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released, severed from the law of marriage, cut off. Released, same word. It also conveys the idea of making something powerless. Paul uses it in that way in 1 Corinthians 1.28. Let's look at that together. 1 Corinthians 1.28. God chose what is low and despised in the world. What is low and despised in the world. 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Bring to nothing, to sever, katergo, katergeo. To bring to nothing, to sever, to cut off. Paul is saying here, you are severed from Christ. You've, you've come to the end of the rope. You're powerless. You're, 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 you're a, a nullity in your relationship. With, look, Jesus didn't come just to be a nice guy and a good philosopher. Jesus didn't come just to give you some good spiritual advice and teaching. He came to die for your sins so that you can be born anew. That's what he says to Nicodemus. That's what John conveys to us by giving us the Nicodemus story. And, and if you want to be justified by the law, that's useless for you. There's no point. If you want to be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, the word fallen here, it's from ekpipto. Ekpipto means to fall from a specific point. Ekpipto is... is um, I, this is a very picturesque word. And so I want to show you three examples of ekpipto in Acts. Actually, one of them is just pipto without the ek in front. But three examples in Acts. Um, the first one is Acts 12, 17. Our 12, 7. Thank you, Miss Carolyn. Acts 12, 7. This is... Uh, there we go. Herod is about to bring him out on that very night. Peter sleeping between two soldiers. He's bound with two chains and sentries before the door guarding the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. A light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. He woke him up and he said, Get up quickly and the chains ekpiptoed off his hands. They fell off. They were on his hands. Boom! Gravity fell off. Ekpipto. Gravity works not only on chains, it works on people. And this is pipto, but it's the same word, it just doesn't have an ek in front of it. Pipto, 29, 20 verse 9. Paul's been preaching, and boy, he's preaching a long time. Paul, he prolonged his speech. Look at this, man. Paul prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, there were lots of lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus. Eutychus, by the way, is the Greek word for lucky. And you'll see why in a minute. Oh, lucky is sitting in the window. And he sinks into a deep sleep. See, these lamps, they produce smoke and fragrance. They were usually pretty bad olive oil, like the stuff not even good enough to cook with. They'd use that in the lamps. So you got that going on. As Paul talked, he sank into a deep sleep. And then Paul just kept going on and on and on. And overcome by sleep, he tiptoed from the third story and was taken up dead. Paul goes down, bends over him, takes him in his arms, says, don't be alarmed, his life's in him. Gone up, broken bread, eaten, conversed, took the youth away alive. So Paul, in essence, God uses Paul to bring him back. But he tiptoed from the third floor. Boom. Acts 27, 32. This is where Paul's in a storm, really bad storm. The 14th night comes. They're driven across the sea. They were nearing land, so they took a sounding. They were 20 fathoms off. That's like 120 feet. A little farther down, they took a sounding again, 15 fathoms. So they're getting closer. That's about 90 feet. 
and fearing we might run aground on the rocks. They let down four anchors on the stern and they prayed for day to come. But it's not coming. The sailors are seeking to escape. They lower the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors. Paul says to the centurion, unless these men stay in the ship, you can't be saved. So the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. They ekpiptoed those ropes. Ekpipto, fallen away. You who would be justified by law have fallen away. You've been severed. You've been cut off. You're tumbling down. It's, you, didn't, you didn't go up. You went down. You ekpiptoed from grace. Now, I'd like to have a discussion with you about grace for just a moment. Grace is a very significant New Testament word. Grace is a word that I fear we often don't appreciate the breadth and fullness of its New Testament usage. Hence, I'd like to talk about it for just a moment. Grace, uh, here it's tes karitos, but grace, charis is the root, can mean a lot of different things. It can mean goodwill. Paul used it that way at, at the beginning of his letter. Grace and peace to you. And just charis, goodwill. It can mean a, a winning quality, a, a graciousness. Uh, an attribute. And we see that in passages like Colossians 4.6. Good usage by Paul of, of grace. But I want you to see it as a winning quality, graciousness. So Galatians 4.6, Paul says, Let your speech always be seasoned or be gracious, seasoned with salt. See, there's that word grace, charis, meaning uh, 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 winsomeness, something that's appealing, something that's, that's um, uh, uh, attractive, okay? Now, there's a third way that this word is used as thanks. Just appreciate it. Caristo is more typically what you might see there, but, but you, can, you can see it also as just thanks in Romans 7.25. Acts and the letter to the Romans 7.25. Let's see that together. Same word. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks. Just gratitude. But there is another meaning that we need to highlight. And I highlight this meaning because it's the meaning that Paul's using here, I believe. This is the idea of a gracious deed or a gift. There's the Greek word... Doron is, is gift, and that's a good word, but, but charis is another word for gift or favor, like let me do you a favor type thing that's really emphasizing the graciousness of the giver. And so you see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians 16. It's one of the clearest examples. 1 Corinthians 16, 3. Paul says, He's collected this money. Um, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you're also to do. On the first day of every week, by the way, that's one of the passages that lets you know the church was gathering on the first day of every week, on Sunday. A lot of people say, aren't we supposed to worship on Saturday? We've got an example of the churches worshiping on Sunday here. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there'll be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those with whom you accredit by letter to carry your charis, your gift. See, it's a gift. 
something graciously given. You see the same usage now where it's translated, however, grace instead of gift in Romans over and over. Look at Romans 3.24. Clearly a passage we've looked at before many times. We'll go read today. Paul talks about people who are justified by his grace as a gift. He uses both words. The grace that Paul's speaking of here, I can draw a picture of. So here is the grace, whoops, that is the gift of which Paul speaks. It looks like this. It is the cross of Christ. It is the price paid for you and me. That's the gift that God gave us that surpasses all other gifts. That's the gift that God gave us with eternal significance. That's the gift that God gave us that transforms who we are and transforms our destiny from death to life. It is the grace of God by which we are saved. It is the gift of God by which we're saved. When we talk about being saved by God's grace, we're not talking as much about this gracious, winsome, great attitude on God's behalf. We're talking about a specific gift, grace, charis, that he gave us in space and time, in true, valid history. Christ died for your sins, and he died for my sins. He died to make us right with God. He died with our eternal fellowship with God in the forefront of his brain. He died for us. And you see it in Romans 3, that this is the righteousness. We're justified by the cross of Christ as a gift. 4.4, Paul says, to one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. It's the same word. Charis. To one who works, his wages aren't counted as a gift, as a grace. But this is a grace to us. This is a gift to us. This is what God gave us. He uses it again on the same three times on this page that I'm pointing out. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on the gift. On the death of Christ. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians when he says in Ephesians 2, 8. In him we have redemption. Ah, where am I? Hold on, hold on, hold on. That's actually a good place to do it, but that's not where I'm looking for. Here, 2, 8. Ah, got it. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his gift. The gift he gave us in kindness. It is the gift that is in Christ Jesus. For by grace, by the gift, by the death of Christ, you've been saved through faith. It is the grace, it is the gift of God, it is the death of Christ that saves us through faith. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, if you want to be justified by what you do, you've fallen away from the cross of Christ as your justification. You don't need it anymore. You've cut yourself off from it. You've decided to go it on your own. And that's not a small thing. That's a huge thing. And then he continues, through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. See, this is what the Holy Spirit does. Paul is saying, through the Spirit, contrasting us to people who have fallen from grace, 
fallen from the cross of Christ. He says, a believer, through the Spirit, by faith, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, I want to talk about the role of the Spirit, and I'll do it more later because we're running out of time. And I'm only going to get to point one of my three points, and I thought all three were so important. We'll get to the other two next week, God willing. But the Spirit, Jesus, before he died, had a last confab with his select few. And he told them, when I leave, the Father's going to send the Spirit. And the Spirit's going to be in you. He says, right now the Spirit's with you. Why? The Spirit was in Jesus, and Jesus was with them. But he's saying there's something going to be different. The Spirit's going to come and dwell in you. The believer has the Holy Spirit taking up residence. And it's the Holy Spirit within us, indwelling us, that transforms us. It is the Holy Spirit. Here's what Jesus said. I will ask the Father. He'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world can't receive. It doesn't see him, doesn't know him. But you know him because he dwells with you in Jesus. And he will be in you. And that's the promise, the indwelling Spirit. The Spirit's not just indwelling us, though. He's also teaching. John 14, 26, Jesus says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll bring to your remembrance all the things I've said to you. He'll teach you all things. The Holy Spirit is at work within the believer to teach you, to instruct you, to remind you. The Christian life is not a life where we on our own work to please God. The Christian life is a life where we are redeemed and pleasing God through the work of Christ who, as he washed us, put his spirit in us to teach us, to indwell us, to remind us, to testify to the work of Christ in us. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I'll send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he'll bear witness about me. If any of this is ringing true in your heart, if in your mind you're saying, this is the work of God for me, I get this. It's the Holy Spirit at work within you that's testifying to the truth of this. That's making sense of this. And if you walk away from this and say, it makes no sense to me at all, then pray to God for the illumination of His Spirit. And just be blunt and say, God, this doesn't make sense to me. Would your Spirit enlighten me? And He will. He will. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. So through the Holy Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And this is something we just trust God for. We do it by faith. And faith is not, well, I don't have time for that. Let me go to hope of righteousness. For the hope of righteousness. Hope is not a lottery pick. Hope is a confident expectation. I don't have time, but look at these passages. Acts 16, 19. That's where the, the woman had the power of divination. And she was a slave and her owners had her. And, 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 and Paul cast the, the demon out from her that allowed her to, to predict the future and stuff. And, and her owners saw that their hope of gain what they confidently expected to make off her. Their income stream was gone. It's a confident expectation. It's not a lottery pick. El Peace, if you look at 2720, that's the shipwreck story. And Paul talks in there about when their hope was gone. Well, the hope wasn't, gee, I now want to die in a shipwreck. It was they confidently expected to make it. And once they weren't confidently expecting to make it anymore, boom. 1 Corinthians 9.10, and 
another passage. This, this shows you that El Peace is a confident expectation. We can confidently expect to be declared right before God, both morally and judicially. And for that, we eagerly wait. The verb's in the present tense, moment by moment, minute by minute, day by day. We constantly wait for the righteousness of Christ, confident in it. So in Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. What law you're, you, you know, are you, are you trying, it, it, it doesn't matter. What matters is faith working through love. There's room for work. This is a big deal. I'm going to pick up with this next week because I'm out of time. But the bottom line is these are words that Paul uses frequently. We do differently because of the love of Christ. The love that he had for us, which is confirmed by his spirit, which grows from us into love for him. So I want to give you your points to ponder and then we've got to go. First of all, I want us to grow in love. And we'll talk about agapao love next week. But I want us to grow in love. Paul said in Philippians 1.9, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. This is my prayer for you. Father, in the name of Jesus, may anyone hearing this message, may their love abound for you more and more. May they grow in knowledge and discernment. Next point, let's show that love to others. Paul says in the first Thessalonian letter, 1-3, he's remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love. What the people were doing out of their faith and out of their love. Not out of a requirement before God to please God but a recognition of love and respect and appreciation and gratitude for what God's done for them. A true faith that recognizes this is real. Jesus really died for us. There really is a God. We really have a relationship with him. His spirit truly indwells us. And it motivates us to do things out of love, out of faith. We can show our love for God, but let's not forget the source of it. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. We love, Paul said, because he first loved us. And we don't want to lose that source. So it's time to go to church, but let me bless you in the name of Jesus. Father, thank you so much for a chance to speak of your love for us. And I fear that I, I don't do an adequate job. But I pray that your Holy Spirit will take over with all adequacy and be the teacher of us all. Father, stir up within us works of love, works of faith to serve you, not out of obligation, but opportunity. That's our prayer. That's where we want to be. That's who we want to be. In Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. See you guys, God willing, next Sunday.